The second thing that I think is ripe for like a DeFi reinvention is the introduction of like zero knowledge technologies um, into like L1s, into the DeFi applications, into all of these things. And this is to like unlock like actual like institutional on-chain usage. When I talk to banks and hedge funds, they're like, huh, like why would I want everyone to like know my position at all times? Like that's such a disadvantage. Like why would I want to use Uniswap and get front run or like have like some like MEV, like extract most of my money? Like DeFi doesn't actually work for like real Wall Street. It's like a lot of the sentiment of like Wall Street, but zero knowledge proofs and technology has the potential to change this. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. This is the last episode, interview episode of the season. After this episode, we're going to do, uh, Mike and I are going to sit down uh, and just kind of recap the episode and talk to you guys about season two. But for this episode, we have uh, two giants of DeFi. We've got Rob Leshner, uh, who started Compound, and Stani Kulichov, uh, who started Ave. Um, if you guys don't know who they are, uh, just actually shocking if you're listening to the show and don't know who they are. So I'm assuming everyone knows who they are, Um, but they are uh, two of the CEOs of of two of the biggest DeFi protocols. Um, And we really wanted to bring them on to this episode to just talk about like, kind of tie the entire season together, right? So we've talked about like under collateralized lending, like fixed rates uh, and this new, like this big like DeFi unlock that we think is gonna happen. And we wanted to tie that entire thing together. But then really what we wanted to talk about too is just like, we've talked a lot about these kind of hyper specific uh, niche areas within crypto, like fixed rates, uh, interest rate swaps, under collateralized loans. And we really wanted to talk to them about uh, the next DeFi bull cycle, like what DeFi is going to look like in 2024 and in 2025. Uh, And really excited to be joined on this episode, not by Mike. Mike is uh, traveling in actually, I think in Africa uh, right now, but uh, really excited to be joined by Dan Smith who is one of our research analysts. So Dan, uh, excited to have you on this, man. Appreciate it. Hopefully I can uh, fill the big shoes for Mike. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Mike has uh, the not, not too big of shoes to fill, so I think he'll, uh, <laughs> he'll do just fine. But what did you, you think of this episode? Uh, I, th- I thought it was a good one. Yeah, it definitely was. Obviously, like you mentioned, two uh, pretty critical people to the, the success of DeFi that we've seen. Um, you know, they've been, been around the space for quite a while and have a, a lot of insights just that they've kind of developed over the years. So... Uh, definitely two heavy hitters. Yeah, I think you guys will really enjoy this episode. We talked a lot about just like tying things together, getting their take on under collateralized loans. The episode went in an interesting place talking about Dow Treasury Management, which a uh, little sneak peek is going to be one of the big themes of season two. Um, so we talked a lot about Dow Treasury Management, talked a lot about under collateralized loans um, and then tied everything together um, by talking about just their predictions for the next uh, the next bull market in crypto. So. Hope you guys enjoy this. Uh, See you on the other side of the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the final episode of Bell Curve. For those who have been following along this entire season, we've been exploring this big thesis that CFI's implosion will move a lot of capital on chain. uh, And the next bull cycle uh, for DeFi will be kicked off by fixed rates. Uh, Fixed rate lend and borrow will unlock, um, will enable like companies and DAOs to basically borrow uh, from the capital markets, from these debt capital markets, instead of just using equity and like tokens to raise capital, that'll unlock a lot of capital flowing into uh, the debt markets. And that could potentially kick off this big debt uh, spurred cycle. We've seen, we had Vance and Michael come on talking about CFI is dead, long live DeFi. We had Tushar from Multicoin 
talking about the makings of a DeFi credit boom. We had Simon from Volts and Alan Niemberg uh, talking about the fixed rate lending unlock. Sid and Teddy came on to talk about uncollateralized lending. Tristan and Udov talking about on-chain derivatives and options. Ben Foreman episode came out last week talking about who are the borrowers in DeFi today. And today we are joined by Stani from Ave and Rob Leshner from Compound. Stani, Rob, welcome to the show, guys. Great to be here. Happy to be here as well. Yeah, great to have you guys. I think I want to start with maybe a basic question, and then we can get deeper into the weeds. Um, I think a lot of folks, when kind of CFI was imploding, uh, were like, "This is really good for DeFi." Everyone's like, "Look at um, uh, look at DeFi. DeFi made it through. DeFi didn't really blow up." And that was kind of like the main talking point I would say for folks in DeFi. Um, and I think a lot of people thought that a lot of capital would flow out of CFI and move into DeFi. Uh, like now we're what three four months removed from this like big CFI implosion. Do you guys think this was a turning point for DeFi, um, or like did this really only matter to those who are already in DeFi? Like I, I guess what have maybe Rob, I'd have you kick it off. Like what do you think have been the long term impacts of this CFI implosion on DeFi? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the changes are going to be more long-term focused than they are short-term focused. Um, you know, in the short term, yes, there's like expectations of like capital movement, like, oh my goodness, like we can't trust CFI things anymore, like pull your money, move it somewhere else. And that's the short-term impact. But I think the long-term impact is much more important. So, and this comes down to like a common understanding and a narrative. So, you know, I've always watched Bitcoin for the last, you know, million years. Um, and people always, you know, viewed Bitcoin as something that like it was important because it was outside of the control of, you know, established, you know, monetary policy. And everyone sort of like got that over time. And, you know, a wide audience was able to like sort of understand this message and understand this narrative. DeFi over the past couple of years has never really had a catalyst moment to help people understand the why DeFi um, in my opinion, until recently. So people have been able to say for years, Stani and I and a lot of other founders have been saying like, oh, DeFi is more transparent. You know, it's more autonomous. It doesn't have like, you know, the human error that like plagues a lot of CeFi and like CeFi businesses. But like no one really like got that pain point or like saw it up close and personal until this summer. And this summer, you know, everybody went from being like, oh, I'll just give all my money to that company and they'll do a good job to like watching this CFI meltdown and say like, oh, I finally understand why DeFi is like so important. Like what these like niche people have been saying for the last couple of years, this is the first event that I think is eye-opening for like the mass media, the mass public, the mass user, the mass politician. Like this is like the first time that I think people are starting to like, get it. And it's not going to immediately translate into additional use. But in the long term, I think it's like a structural tailwind for all of DeFi to have an event that was like, like an explanation of like, and a justification and a vindication of DeFi. Yeah. Stani, how do you feel about that? Do you agree with Rob here? Yeah, I have, I have definitely the same, uh, same vibes in the sense that you know, we, 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 we've been building um, together, me and Rob, uh, for, for a few years now, Decentralized Finance, and it's basically a uh, passion to us and something that we really, really care about. Um, but also kind of like we all in, in Decentralized Finance, we still are a very small uh, community and there's different reasons and, and benefits why, why um, we're, we're building um, the ecosystem and and I've been watching from from the side 
quite a lot of how the kind of like a centralized finance part uh, works. And I, I, I personally believe like um, whether it's like CFI blowing up or let's say banks or DeFi, none of these things are good for um, general in for economy or for people who are uh, using and trusting these systems. But um, what's interesting there is that we're in DeFi trying to kind of like mitigate some of the risks that we've seen um, happen in, in finance where, you know, you give custody of your funds and you have lack of transparency and um, crypto in general has been a space where you've seen a lot of service providers uh, building up uh, on the top of the open source infrastructure. Um, and what we've seen is that, um, you know, you don't really have visibility what is happening on some of these um, service providers. and. What DeFi is um, fascinating is it, it, it actually provides an infrastructure where you have that uh, transparency and, and you mitigate a lot of the uh, risks. And, and usually you care about them, as Rob said, that um, when things um, go to the wrong way. So when we actually start seeing that many of these market participants are taking excessive risk um, and at the same time um, there's lack of visibilities, and you can't withdraw your funds uh, out of the, these uh, providers. And then we start to care about uh, decentralized finance because that's that those protocols were the only ones where mm. many of the um, uh, participants uh, paid their loans. So I, I definitely think it, it, it kind of like brings up the um, idea why we're building and why we're doing this. Um, but it, it, uh, like, unfortunately, it always requires this kind of like an event to happen. Yeah. I, so I, I think um, I think you guys like hit what was the narrative and what still is the narrative really well, which is like, OK, D, this is DeFi's shining moment. Everything is on chain. It's very transparent. It's auditable. Um, you didn't have these like massive margin calls necessarily that like like sent CeFi companies underwater and eventually uh, caused them to really go under. Uh, there's, there's one big difference though, that maybe folks in DeFi don't talk about as much, which is it didn't blow up because it's uh, over collateralized in DeFi, right? Which is uh, different than how traditional capital markets work where you have under collateralized lending. Um, I'm just curious, like, so in our episode with Tushar, I think it was episode two or three of the season, he pointed out that under collateralized lending without the ability to have legal recourse after a delinquent borrower is troublesome and maybe can't scale. So I'm just curious to, to hear how both of you guys, maybe Rob, if you could kick it off, like how you guys are approaching and thinking about under collateralized lending right now. Well, we're, we're not so much. Um, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that makes DeFi so effective is that it's able to function very efficiently on chain, which with a very small computer program that doesn't really require much human judgment um, anywhere. You know, why? Well, all of the collateral is stored in this very small computer program. And when a user needs to be liquidated, the collateral is already there. And you don't ever have to, you know, take anything off chain. Um, it's very efficient and simple. And when you start to bring uncollateralized into it, either it's more complicated on-chain computation. There's a lot of startups trying to do like credit scores and data analysis to be able to do like smart contract driven decision making, which I think is like still a long way away. Or the recourse has to be done off-chain and like liquidation is slow and it's cumbersome and it's inefficient. Um, DeFi, simply put, works really well with collateral. Um, you know, there's not yet that many examples of it working that well, uncollateralized. Um, I think over time, there's going to be more and more experiments. There's like 7,000 startups chasing this problem right now. Um, but DeFi works today 
and it has worked yesterday and the year before and the year before extremely well with almost no issues for collateralized borrowing. Um, and I just think that's because it's easy. It's trivial. Uncollateralized is so much harder of a problem. And, you know, DeFi didn't have any issues because we like we're using something that we know works. Like, you know, we can also scale this thing that we know works like <laughs> right yeah. now today. Like it's like it's not a proof of concept. It's like production grade in a lot of places. So I think that's the biggest difference is that uncollateralized hasn't been proven to work yet. C5 businesses have struggled with this for so long. Three Arrows Capital ripped everybody's faces off. <laughs> um, you know, uncollateralized is just a much harder problem set than we have all yeah. the collateral in our hands. We can liquidate it instantly. Yeah. Rob, do you think that, uh, and then Stani, I want to get your take on this. Rob, do you think that you guys just won't go after the under collateralized lending market and someone else will, and someone else will figure it out? Or you just think that like capital markets in the future will maybe be a more collateralized system than they are today, but, but more, but, but, but much more efficient too, because things will move faster. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I do think, um, collateral based systems are just radically more efficient. Like the majority of finance is based on collateral, not credit. Um, you know, it, I, I think there's going to be a role for the extension of credit based on the character and the, the you know, identity of something. But I, I just think that collateral-based systems can be so much larger and so much more effective. Yeah. Stani, uh, Rob mentioned the 7,000 startups taking on under-collateralized loans and FICO and credit scores. To an outsider, I don't know if you guys have officially announced this, and I, I'm totally speculating here, but when I look at something like Lens Protocol, this is maybe your guys' solution to like on-chain credit score, FICO, social reputation for lending to peers. I'm just curious how like maybe two-part question here, like how you think about under-collateralized lending and like what's the role of something like a Lens, a decentralized social network in, in under-collateralized lending? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the way they, like we have under collateral lending today is, is basically, I mean, I really admire the, the ambition of, of some of these uh, kind of like a projects going after the um, idea. Um, and, and also like, um, I, I see that many of the lending activities, it's actually lending between peers that are uh, funds that, that take a lot of risk. So in, in most of the cases, it's not actually um, lending to finance a, some sort of uh, impactful uh, opportunity, and and for me, um, since uh, uh, very beginning and, and before even in um, whole decentralized finance and finding Ethereum, like for me, like I tried to find a way to um, kind of like use uh, uh, finance in a way to provide access. And I think like what we have done in decentralized finance is that we created this like a global um, access to this global liquidity market that works quite effectively because you don't uh, rely on those uh, paper agreements and you have smart contract-based um, execution. But once you go down the line where you need some sort of enforcement, uh, things become trickier, especially cross-border um, loan um, transactions and, and uh, agreements. And I think like um, uh, there's definitely like a lot of op opportunity in, in finding uh, more optimistic ways of actually financing and, and creating impact, but uh, the risks are completely different than it, than it's uh, in collateral-based uh, lending systems. I do believe uh, that on-chain uh, data, and especially like on-chain on social graph, uh, where you have mutual connections and you create your own graph, um, and using blockchain 
a way to verify that uh, graph. It, it provides sort of value. Um, for example, being able to use that value somewhere where you're doing um, credit risk assessment when you are, uh, let's say, moving from one country to another um, and using kind of like a global verified uh, data on, on different use cases. But solely by itself, it's, it's, it's a bit um, too far away, I would say. I, I would love to use uh, something like a social graph or any on-chain verified data, uh, even your DAO voting record um, in the compound protocol or the other protocol, and use that as a, as a way, as additional data to verify uh, your credit worthiness and, and being able to, uh, to passport. But I think we're, we're still like very far uh, away, but we will see a lot of attempts because it's a, such an ambitious uh, uh, challenge um, uh, to solve. Yeah, I think I, I have a feeling that's going to be one of the big, I mean, it's already getting funded. Like there are so many companies doing like FICO or on-chain credit or on-chain reputations, but I have a feeling one or two of them really takes off in the next bull run, maybe doesn't fully get extreme product market fit, but I have a feeling one or two of them probably do make it. What one thing I want to get your take on is um shoot, who was it? It was um it was either Alan or Teddy, maybe Teddy Woodward from Notional was talking about that loan collateralized being loans being collateralized by like native tokens and whether or not this is like an under collateralized loan or a collateralized loan. Right? Because you're really just I think it was Alan, right? Like you're really just taking a bet on the business's future cash flows either way. Uh, and and it, was, it was actually Teddy from Notional. He's like, I, he thinks that this is going to be the cause of the next bubble, um, which is you have like tokens rally even more because of it. There's more borrowing because the token price goes up and it eventually could cause this really intense reflexive unwind. Um, but I'm just curious, like Rob, what do you think of uh, uh, cl- like maybe collateral, or I don't even know what to call them, but like loans that are collateralized by a native token of a DAO. Um, and the DAO uses that to, to capitalize their business instead of just issuing more equity. Yeah, I mean, there's efficiencies and inefficiencies to this. Like yeah. the, we haven't really seen too many DAOs at like the protocol level borrowing yet. Um, it's a great idea, but like it, it's still in its like first chapter, right? Well, um, can I can I just pick, like stop you there and just say why like why is that? And I want to hear the answer to the other question, but like why why haven't we seen more of that? Is it cuz all the rates are variable? Like why why is that? Well, no, I think it has nothing to do with the rates. I I okay. think we've seen very few protocols really and there's a lot of talk of like treasury management and like the protocol space. Like even like the basics of like treasury management <laughs> are like still in like chapter 1 for all of these different protocols. Yeah. Right. And we've seen like very little experimentation. Like we've seen a couple of different protocols go totally hog wild. But like for the most part, like treasury management isn't that big of a concept yet at the protocol level. Right. Most protocols aren't trading. They're not borrowing. They're not like like even in like the basics of like treasury management. And so like borrowing for a protocol is like in my mind more complicated than like selling off governance tokens for a stable coin or something like that. Like it's just like one level more advanced of like a cash management and treasury management strategy. Mm. So I like, I, I think like the reason why we haven't seen too much of it yet is that like, we're still chapter one of just treasury management for protocols. Yeah. Um, and I think we will see protocols become financially sophisticated in managing their own assets at like yeah. a protocol level. But like, it's also possible that something else entirely 
occurs and like it just never takes off. Like what if instead of every protocol has to figure out treasury management, by the way, like none of them really have like qualified finance people. Yeah. What if like treasuries of protocols figure out a way to like give all the money to like an actual off-chain hedge fund or something that like is actually really good at this and has 4,000 people that are unbelievably sophisticated and all they do is manage treasuries. So like, I don't know how it's going to shake out and like what the right market structure is long-term. Like maybe a decentralized community is really shitty at like governing and managing a bucket of money. Most of the cases so far of like a decentralized community governing a bucket of money have been total fails. So like maybe that's not what happens. Maybe like an outside like off-chain thing figures out how to manage money on behalf of protocols. Yeah. Who knows? I, I have a thesis on this. I want to get your guys' take on it. I don't think communities and DAOs can manage their own treasuries, not because they're inept and not because they don't know how to manage money. Then people people inside of DAOs know how to manage money. Uh, it's because of the community. It's because of the community backlash. So let's say I'm Stani and I want to manage Ave's treasury. Um, if I'm and I have a shit ton of Aave sitting in my treasury. If I'm today, I'm like, oh, I need to get more in USDC or I need to get more like out, I, I need to take less risk on Aave. And I go sell 50% of my Aave or even 10% of my Aave. Not only could that spook the market, but it could re- like your community is like, well, why are you selling Aave? Like you should be long Aave. You're like, no, I am long Aave. It's my company. But like, <laughs> But like, I need dollars. I need to sit in dollars. I need to sit in something safe. So like, I actually think that outsource model of treasury management is going to be huge, not because they're better at managing treasuries, but because it takes away that like that community pressure on you to to manage it. So Stani, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, like it it takes the emotion out of the the, 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 the transaction. So I I agree. I I mean, we've seen like a few attempts on the treasure management and it's, it's so very basic. So um, I, I know there's like within the Aave community, there, there's been like a um, swap between Aave and Balancer uh, communities and, and some small kind of like tweaks uh, here and there. Um, but, I, you know, I just feel like that everything has to be like actually like a protocol level managed thing and, and something that I'm personally very excited to see where the Aave community has been taking is that there's a lot of service provider companies like Gauntlet and um, Chaos Labs that are providing risk services. And then you have um, treasure management services provided as well as a uh, service. So, but it's um, effectively, it's still very early and, and like how optimized you really want to be. And what Rob mentioned, which, which is very interesting, like there isn't that many actually like uh, you know, professionals uh, in the space doing it. It's just like a lot of ideas coming in and experimentations, you know, and some of these protocols are growing substantially uh, big enough that, you know, you can't really anymore experiment the same way as you could do with a smaller uh, DAO and you need to have a lot of actually um, modeling and, and data to to back up what you're uh, doing so and then there is the, because it's a DAO effectively so then you have like people who like the idea people who don't like the idea everyone has their own like stake in 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 various of these um, uh, initiatives so it, it becomes very much of a um, <laughs> like a governance yeah um, will you do you guys think you I mean the way that most protocols have raised capital is just by some sort of equity, right? Whether you call that a token or you raise a VC round, whatever you want to call it. Do you see Compound and Aave raising from the debt markets in the next couple of years? Like, is that like either on-chain debt or or just off-chain, like norm, normal 
normal debt markets? Like, is that something that you guys see happening or is equity still just uh, so cheap in, in the land of tokens that, that there's no reason that there's no reason to tap the debt markets? I'll let Stani answer that. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, low, uh, low on the trigger for uh, for that response. <laughs> I, I mean, the stablecoin liquidity is is quite cheap at the moment um, because of the market conditions. So, but that introduces the the element of um, credit. But like, um, I I will see some sort of like whatever you borrow, right? You have to pay back. So you have to back it some. Uh, interesting way. I mean, the other protocol is getting revenue as a reserve factor, and you know you can use that revenue. Currently, it's used for protocol development, um, funding different developers, and risk management, and even actually, uh, funny as it is, a bit of treasury management as well. So, um, but like some some way somehow you need to repay that uh, whatever you borrowed. So, like protocol revenue is good. Mm-hmm. But you know yields are going down as well. So like, like I, I really want to send a message that is like that we need more uh, conservative approach on what we're doing because the stakes are going and increasingly going higher. Um, and I, that's my, my my higher like a bigger worry. Hmm. Do you guys? I'm I'm trying to pull out some things that I think could occur in the next bull market and and trying to, or even in just like the next cycle of DeFi. I'm trying to pull some things out of you guys that that maybe you guys think could happen. One thing that we've discussed on the show is uh, like lending and borrowing or really borrowing against the DAO's future cash flows. So like let's use um I don't know Uniswap just because that's been one that's been in the in the narrative recently. Like could Uniswap? Could you see Uniswap borrowing on an Ave or a Compound or or maybe a different platform against their future cash flows or really any protocol that spits off capital? Is that something that you guys see happening in the next cycle? Maybe Rob, can I pick on you for that one? I mean, it, it's hard to say. I, I think you know you might see it, um, you know, but it's one of these things that like is going to be up to their community. And like, you know, so far we've not seen that many protocols using other protocols as like you know a financial tool. Um, and this goes back to my earlier point about just like treasury management is just super simple. Like if there was like an overwhelming need to, I think they would f- do that. I think they would figure it out. I think they would like develop a strategy for it. But, you know, I don't think there's any indication yet that there's like a important need to. Um, and that they would need to do that before some other strategy, like just like selling off tokens or whatever. Like I, I like I see like also like ability like if you have a like a DAO and you know you have token supply and if you feel like you know you can actually uh, put more tokens into the market and get more new uh, you know participants that, that are excited what you're building that could be still way to go like it's still relatively um, attractive model basic yeah. issuance huh. I want to I want to pivot a little and talk about fixed rates because Rob, one of our big theses on the show, and then Dan, I'm going to toss this question over to you for the for the next question. But Rob, one of your uh, one of our things that we've talked about on the show so far is like fixed rates are going to or like interest rate swaps and like this whole market gets developed. Then we get fixed better fixed rates, like cheaper fixed rates. I know you guys rolled out of the fixed rate thing, Stani. You guys have had something for a little while at Ave, and that will unlock more capital flowing into like that means like Blockworks as a company or like a DAO uh, or protocol could borrow on chain because 
if you're if we're a company like we don't want to borrow variable rate because that would that that's really risky as a company. Dan, I want to toss it over to you for the next question related to like maybe something around fixed rates and yields because I think Rob, you had pushed back on that thesis, but yeah. So uh, you know, Avi and Compound have kind of both been uh, driven primarily around the uh, variable rate. Uh, debt markets and you know somewhere around like 90, 90 or so, even higher than that, up to like 95, 96% of the uh, loans on Aave right now are driven by these variable rates. Um, but, it, you know, they also do have this fixed rate product that uh, kind of readjusts as the markets move, um, but generally stays at a relatively fixed rate. Uh, and then, of course, Compound's launching the, they launched the Compound Treasury last year, and now they're enabling uh, credit accredited institutions to borrow uh, at fixed rates around 6%. Uh, so yeah, Rob, maybe I'll start with you on this one. And can you just kind of talk about this renewed focus on fixed rates and uh, kind of how you see that coming in line with institutional demand uh, and also curious around like the mechanism that can ensure that 6%. Yeah. So fixed rates, you know, fundamentally, like it's a question of like fixed for how long, right? Are we talking about like duration risk at this point? Like, you know, in traditional finance, fixed rate comes with a very specific duration or maturity, right? And so this, even the word fixed means very different things, right? Um, when it comes to defining crypto markets. So first off, I think the important thing to understand is that everyone has a different like expectation of time, right? Um, crypto moves much more quickly than the traditional world. Like a month can feel like five years, like so much happens in a short period of time that even when you say fixed rate, like I don't think most people are expecting like fixed rate, like you see in traditional finance, like a 10 year instrument, like that would just seem like so absurd in crypto, right? Um, so I think like fundamentally like fixed rate in crypto, like in people's heads, it's like fixed for a month, like fixed for three months, fixed for what period of time? Right. It's definitely not like years like we see in traditional finance as like the default like tenor. Right. So within that, I think like talking to market participants, like a lot of borrowers do prefer fixed rates over variable rates. I think, and I'm speculating here that like you don't see more adoption on Aave because the fixed rate is always higher than the variable rate. So people right. just say like, oh, I'll just borrow variable until it does this thing. But like, the fixed rate is always higher. So like people just are also greedy and choose the lower rate, which is why you don't see a lot of it. Um, but like borrowers prefer fixed rate. Like when you talk to them, you're like, oh, like, what do you want to do? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? Like they all sort of like the predictability of like a known cost that can't go up on them. You don't see the same as much, I think, on the supply side where people are like, you know, it's more like idle cash. It's more like, you know, things that aren't being deployed elsewhere. Or like there's an understanding that like it's temporary, like you know, I don't think like the suppliers of liquidity care as much about fixed rates. I do think there's a bias though on the borrower side that appreciates the predictability, especially because borrowers are like, I'm going to be borrowing for, you know, I know how long, no one else knows how long I'm going to buy a house or I'm going to like invest in some startup or I'm going to like do this thing. Like they have more of an idea of like what they're doing with the borrowed assets and for what period of time. Um, so I think that's the next bias that like is inherent in crypto that's like, you know, a little different. I think like the opposite's probably true in like, you know, the rest of the world, like duration and like fixed is like a risk and like it adds risk to like both people earning an interest rate and paying an interest rate. Like it literally just creates unnecessary like financial exposure because the rates come generally like from 
the Federal Reserve and central banks. And like when they move rates, like someone with a fixed rate is losing, like someone with a fixed rate is benefiting. Who is it? Right. And it's like it, that's just like perceived as a financial risk to like both sides of the equation. If you can eliminate that financial risk. Great. Um, so we'll see how the market unfolds. You know, one of the things that we've done at Compound is through Compound Treasury, which is an institutional business built on top of the Compound Protocol, focus on fixed rates um, for the clients. So um, clients that are providing liquidity or borrowing from Compound Treasury do have a fixed rate. Um, the terms are, you know, they're not in the years, they're negotiated with each client, but, you know, it's in the it's in the expectation of months, not years and not like a week. Yeah, that's focus on uh, the shorter term makes a lot of sense. Like, right. I think like we always say a month in DeFi feels like a year. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I think another great point you brought up was really around like if I'm a user and I go on a lending plat protocol to take out a loan, I see two numbers. I'm like always picking the, the lower one. Right. Like to me, it's like, OK, if I'm. I feel like a lot, I have a, this thesis that a lot of the users today that are borrowing are probably just like trying to take levered bets on like an ETH position, for example, or a wrapped Bitcoin position. Um, so how do you see the user base today? Like what does the average borrower on uh, Compound or Aave look like? Uh, and uh, and how do you see that shifting going forward? Does the introduction of more uh, lower fixed rates kind of change that into a more institutional borrower? Well, I can say that from, uh, yeah, from Aave's perspective, um, I, I would definitely, like, one, one of the things that, things that the institutions sometimes mention is, is um, having more, uh, I would say, like a stable or predictable rate um, is, 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 is something that they could be, look, they, they are looking after as well. Um, you know, that, that helps also to understand the kind of like a, like a business and commercial case on using something like decentralized finance. Um, but I, I think like end of the day, like the, the fixed rates uh, become valuable when you're going into uh, a bigger scale and a more longer term um, relationship um, with, uh, with a protocol. So I, I think that's where, where it, it becomes very valuable. But I, I think over time as, as DeFi scales and it proves itself as a, um, global uh, liquidity markets. Um, I, I think there is going to be a lot of opportunity. And in terms of the uh, rates at the moment, I think most of the users within the DeFi ecosystem they're they're pretty much like complaining about the lower yields. Um, which, when you look at your, you know, traditional financial infrastructure and, and banking, like it's not actually um, that bad, but it's not obviously the best. Um, time at the moment, but I, I think it's more about like the, the predictability and being able to um, hedge your risk is, is what's valuable. But that, that, that happens when we go more into scale. Uh, 200 billion or 100 billion in DeFi is just such a, like a tiny uh, thing of, of the whole financial ecosystem. Um, so it's still very early. What, what triggers people wanting to borrow for the longer term, right? Like, like what's a, what's a main long, like a 30 year mortgage or something like a 30 year mortgage is not a thing that exists in nature. Like it's a, you have to use interest rate swaps to lock in rates. It's like not this, you have to like, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes of a 30 year mortgage, obviously. Like what causes people to want to borrow 
even on a five-year rate or something, or even on a two-year rate, right? Like what, what kicks that off? Is it just the size of the market? Is it uh, protocols coming in and borrowing? Like what, Stani, what do you, what do you think kicks off that like demand for longer term borrow? Well, one thing I can say is that, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of people who are uh, using decentralized finance and uh, in my peer group, um, there are a lot of people who actually have most of their uh, network in uh, digital assets. So, so because obviously they've been working in the space for you, you don't time. And, and you don't say. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's that's an interesting thing. And and some of the finance goals are, for example, you know, buying a house or paying for tuition um, or, or or buying cars. So there are a lot of use cases where actually the the uh, the borrowed capital is going back to the um, economy and you're financing a, a goal in real life. So not mm. everything is actually related to um, to borrowing from one protocol uh, and, and moving the funds to another. There is actually usage on, on, on and, and these relationships, especially when it comes to financing fully or partially your um, home with your unlocked capital um, from your portfolio, um, that's a long-term relationship. Hmm. How important do you guys think that um, the ETH staking rate is to DeFi? Like, uh, Rob, I think you're the one who just said this like 10 minutes ago. Like in, in traditional capital markets, you have like the Fed and you have LIBOR and like you have these like set rates basically. And we've never had that in crypto until you could argue this like the state the stake rate basically um, and the capital that like this proof of stake system uh, spits off. Do, uh, Rob, do you think that this is the new base rate? of crypto and that like this whole yield curve gets built on the back of that base right now? Well, it's definitely going to be the base rate of Ethereum, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it'll become the base rate therefore of Ether. And I think that's going to like trickle down to most DeFi applications in one way or another. Um, you know, it'll change the economics of like LPing Ether in a Uniswap pool, or it'll change the economics of using Ether as collateral on Compound Arave or MakerDAO, right? It's going to change the economics of pretty much everything. So there's now like a 4% opportunity cost. Um, and I think you'll see that like over time bleed into pretty much everything else that gets built in the ecosystem. And I, I think it'll become like the, like the base assumption of like everything has to do whatever Ether returns. Otherwise, like, what's the point? I'll just like, you know realize that through Ether in one way or another. So I, I think we'll start to see over time more and more one finance applications built around the staking yields. We're already seeing it. We're already seeing huge demand for, you know, liquid staking products, leveraging them up, like hedging them, like all of this. We're going to see more and more of that as um, staking takes off. And two, we're going to see like the interest rates from Ether, like, like osmos and be absorbed into like all these other applications one way or another. So that's pretty interesting. And like you mentioned that it would potentially change the dynamics of LPing uh, in a liquidity pools. Do you think, so right now on Uniswap, the most uh, volume driving pool is the USDC ETH pair uh, by quite a considerable margin. Do you think it'd start to make more sense for that pair to become like a USDC paired with staked ETH? So at least the LPs are earning a portion of that staking rewards uh, or like, how do you see that dynamic really shaking out uh, with, uh, in terms of affecting uh, liquidity pool? No, I mean, I do. So like, you know, fundamentally, like if, you know, a Uniswap D3 LP position, you know, I, I haven't looked lately, but let's just say like Ether USDC is yielding 20%. 
right? Like that 20% is offset by all the impermanent loss. Like it's very different if you're earning 24% or 16% or like whatever, like 4% in either direction. There's a big difference when, you know, the total yield to cover all of the impermanent loss is like not that huge to begin with. If it's like, oh, we're earning 80%, like who cares? Like whatever, like it's not going to make that big of a difference. But I, I do think it starts to become like really important that staking yield opportunity cost. That's interesting. Does, um, I mean, just on that note, like does five years from now, will any ETH circulate in the system or will it all just be like staked ETH circulating in the system? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of Ether circulating in the system because, you know, let's just say a year from now, you're going to be able to unstake Ether, right? Right, right now, right. it's pretty much a one-way bridge where you're like, I'm staking yeah. it. Well, like, like in like a year, like a lot of ETH will, un, un, like it'll circulate, but like maybe like next bull run well, i don't know when the next bull run's going to be but like take take me forward to like three to five years like i feel like it's just gonna be steep moving around well i expect that because you'll be able to unstake you'll be more likely to stake in the first place right so yes like a lot more ether like there's gonna be less of a reason to like hold ether unstaked so like the average person who's not transacting a lot will just say like oh of course i'll stake all my ether if i'm not like using it in DeFi, like or nfts or right. whatever on a daily basis, like you may as well stake it, which means that like all the ether that's left over is going to be the circulating, like we're going to use this for like fees and like, you know, costs, um, ether. But like, you know, I think there'll, there'll be enough there for like all the liquidity needs of all the users because you can always make more of it by unstaking. So I don't think it's going to necessarily lead to like some like crazy supply shock. Yeah. You know, I do think participation rates will go up, which will decrease staking yield, but like that's good too. Stani, has it um would you say staked ETH has had a negative like a substantially negative impact on your guys' business because you used to the only way to get like let's call it 4% in crypto or 5% was like I don't know, you lend you lend on a borrow and lend platform or on a on a protocol and now you can just like maybe drop your ETH into Lido and get four or 5%. So like, what's been the, I mean, there are a lot of positive things for Aave, obviously from, from this, uh, from, from staking, but like, what are the negative things and like how, I guess how negative has it been on, on Aave? Well, the interesting part is that if there is uh, staking ETH demand, it, it drives um, ETH out of the, um, the Aave protocol, obviously. Um, but that's, that basically, um, demand will be replaced with, with new ETH because that creates a market opportunity within the Aave uh, protocol. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's actually quite interesting because Lido is, you know, it's, it's tokenized uh, liquid ETH. So uh, within the Aave protocol, you can, you can use it um, as a collateral and unlock some of the uh, capital as well. I mean, there is um, some of the users are actually um, taking, they're staking into Lido, uh, taking the staked ETH and using that as a collateral uh, to borrow more ETH and leveraging their um, staking um, positions to some extent. But I think like in some ways, I would believe that, you know, the DeFi rates will follow a bit uh, the, the staking yields. And I, I guess like that, like broader, like negative impacts, um, you know, it's, um, yeah, I, I guess like the, the, the more challenging part for the whole staking it um, at this part is that it's one way, right? So, you know, it's it's kind of like a bit inefficient market. So, so for example, things like stake eat um, in tokenized fashion will obviously trade in a lower um, 
value than the underlying because that's that's where the opportunity is. People who don't um, have the time to wait until the Shanghai um, upgrade, you know, they they might want to sell exit their stake the position. You know, obviously that's something that adds um, risk into the um, equation. So you have to be mindful of all the um, multi-value ratios where when you are using something like stake stake deed as a collateral in the um, Aave protocol. Hmm. I want to get your guys' take on um, real world assets, actually, right? And just like where on where on chain yield comes from. Actually, not maybe zooming out from where where the yield comes from, like. I just want to get your guys' take on real-world assets, right? Because there was a really hotly contested topic, specifically with, like, Maker. I feel like it's been a pretty hot topic recently, Um, right? You have, like, I think the Maker argument would be, like, you can increase the total addressable market and, like, just the size of the protocol and the the supply of the the loans if you bring on real-world assets. Maybe the downside is um, if you're trying to create this, like, censorship-resistant protocol and now you're onboarding a bunch of, like, capital from a bank um, or, like, real estate or something like that, and now you're intimately tied into the traditional like off-chain system. So Rob, what are your thoughts on just real world assets as supply? Well, first of all, I hate the phrase real world asset because it's broad and it's confusing. Ether is a real world asset, okay? Most things on a blockchain are real world assets. They exist. Like, I think what people really mean is off-chain asset. And I think when you start to like describe it as off-chain assets, the risks and the opportunities become more clear. Mm. And so I think there's really like two things that like people think about in terms of off-chain assets. One is a way from accessing off-chain assets on-chain. Like I want to figure out how to get like treasury yields on like U.S. treasuries on-chain somehow. The other is how do we bring some like asset or exposure to it or a contract or an agreement like onto the blockchain and like, um, like securitize or tokenize like something like entirely different. Like one is like reaching out and one is like pulling in. But like in both cases, it's like how do we interact with something off chain? Um, there's also like this third component, which is like oracles and price information, where it's like that's like the first like taste of like off chain assets because like well, how do we get off chain data onto a blockchain? But all of this is just you know a simple way of saying like the opportunity is huge. Okay, like. But the risks are also huge. The minute you start to have like things that can't be entirely contained in a smart contract, when you're required to have some like off-chain interactions, is when you start to like reach outside of like predictability and automation and into sort of predictability and like sort of automation and like all of the things that are inefficient about traditional finance and traditional assets. And so the market is massive when you start to bring in off-chain assets, but I think you start to lose a lot of the efficiency that comes from fully on-chain systems that are, you know, completely predictable, completely autonomous, completely transparent, you know, and completely self-contained. Uh, Stani, is it, do you think it's worth the, I'd honestly just call it like a headache, like a colossal headache to deal with off-chain assets, but it obviously increases pretty drastically the the size the size uh, of the supply, right? Like, do you, in your mind, is it worth it? Uh, simple things, yeah. Like any like um, um, tokenizing cash balances, um, like we have done with USDC. That's um, that's has been very useful for, across the whole DeFi ecosystem. Um, but when it gets 
a bit more complex, that's where uh, it gets trickier. I mean, some of these um, projects like Centrifuge, they have done very interesting work on tokenizing um, receivables and, and making it a bit more uh, simpler. But also like there's different kinds of like uh, off-chain assets as um, uh, Robert is saying, um, which are very complex, like real estate. And, you know, it's like you have start to have like multiple layers of kind of like a challenges. And obviously there's ways to transfer the risk away. Um, but I, I kind of like believe um, in simplicity when it comes to uh, this real world assets and, and kind of like what we've seen uh, so far. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I remember a conversation with the head of JP Morgan's crypto team like two years ago. And she was like, we're tokenizing. We're going to token. I was like, mm, like JP Morgan's crypto team is not really doing anything impactful. And they're like, uh, she's like, we're going to tokenize U.S. treasuries. And I was like, why would anyone want tokenized treasuries? Like the yield is like 2%, 3%. And here in DeFi, we've got like 20%. And now here I am sitting here, October 2020. And I'm like, damn, I wish these tokenized treasuries were uh, were real. And so like, man, maybe maybe JP Morgan beat, uh, beat folks to the punch here. That'll be interesting to see. So uh, Rob, I like the way you laid it out though. It's like, you've got, you've got things that, like produce yield already. It's like tokenizing treasuries. And then you've got things that you're like having to basically pull into DeFi uh, that like, it's not as simple. So I think that's a good way to look at it. Dan, anything else on um, like real world assets, anything that you're curious about? Uh, I think we kind of hit it all right there. I mean, yeah, I just think like the Oracle problem really becomes kind of pushed f- further into the forefront. I mean, Chainlink's our best option right now, but uh, like, they still are like they still have some multi-sig uh, impact there you know like we we don't know all the signers and uh there is still some some questions around the security there so i think it's really just about expanding uh kind of like how we bring off-chain data on chain and, and really starting from the ground up i think is very important there yeah are uh Stani or rob i don't know who wants to take this but are you guys worried about do you th- are you worried about kind of the like maker concern of censorship, like building an entirely censorship resistant protocol, like 100% censorship resistant. If you want to do that, you would not onboard real world assets, but you also kind of drastically limit your, the supply of the, uh, so Rob, I'm curious how you think about that. Well, in order to do that, you'd have to not have any off-chain asset like USDC. Like USDC, is a, yeah. As yeah. an off-chain asset. Yeah, yeah. WBTC is an off-chain asset fundamentally. You wouldn't allow any asset that had an off-chain component to it, Um, which really starts to limit the scope. I mean, I think almost every DeFi protocol supports USDC and supports WBTC and is already past the point of like actual censorship resistance fundamentally. There's some protocols that are taking like a back to basics approach and like only supporting things that are fully on-chain and like that's really cool. Um, but I think like right now, fundamentally, like almost every DeFi application, if you had like a coordinated, like nation level attack, like could obviously like censor or destroy a DeFi protocol, like point blank, that's true. Um, so then the question is like, what, what standards are you looking for? Right? Like if you know that like, you know, USDC blacklisting the address will like destroy pretty much any protocol, <laughs> like MakerDAO Compound, Aave, Uniswap, like whatever. Like that would be an existential like issue and it would like harm users tremendously. If like that's already a risk and like the application already supports USDC, like 
where do you draw the line? Is it like, well, you know, I know that we're taking USDC risk, but we're also taking risk of some bank refusing to pay us back at MakerDAO. Like there's some series of lines you draw in real world assets. And like, maybe you're completely cool with like the USDC alone risk, but you're not cool with, you know, any random court can like, you know, have a finding yeah. and like, you know, someone doesn't have to pay things back to a DeFi protocol instead of it being like one potential actor. It's like, well, now there's like any court can like screw it over. So like there's a lot of different places you can draw the line. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see how all of this evolves. I think MakerDAO probably feels the biggest need and the pain point right now because in a lot of ways they're the most at risk of like a government saying like no we don't like that like you made your own money like no thanks like <laughs> like that because it's big and like they've had a lot yeah. of success and they have like it's a huge non-fully one-to-one reserve backed stablecoin and right now governments hate non-fully reserved one-to-one backed stablecoins all of a sudden after ust imploded so you know i think MakerDAO might want to draw the line sooner than other DeFi protocols that are like can take more censorship risk. Like if there's anyone out there that can't bear as much censorship risk because they're at higher risk of censorship, it's probably something like MakerDAO that needs to be more conservative about those risks. Stani, like I'm just really curious to see like there's all these regulatory things going on and then you guys decide to launch uh, a stable coin, like obviously probably big risks, but also colossal rewards. So like what was the business decision behind this and why did you guys do this? I mean, if, if you look kind of like the uh, the the other protocol, effectively, it's it's a um, uh, it's it's a market of different uh, stablecoins there. So many of these stablecoins, uh, you know, they have a different kind of uh, narrative, or I would say even um, setup. So we have USDC that that that's um, basically um, tokenized. Um, uh, balances from from uh, Circle. There's uh, there's also MakerDAO's uh, die. So having uh, a stablecoin within the Aave ecosystem really helps uh, in certain cases with the liquidity crunches and, and diversifies uh, those uh, stablecoin pools as well. But also it gives a it gives a bit more kind of like um, ability for the Aave um, community to to effectively govern uh, their own stablecoin. So. And I think it's like it's it's not like the the other community like the 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 ghost stablecoin is replacing the the other ones that are in the market. It's uh, effectively is something that is um, more of a, a supplement um, into the whole uh, stablecoin ecosystem. But the vision is is quite uh, more I would say uh, bigger in the sense that we uh, we believe that um, you know. Uh, especially with the layer twos, um, stablecoins can become a very valuable tool for uh, not just internet payments, but solving uh, real world problems across the world. Um, during last month, for example, I was in Argentina and something very fascinating, I uh, realized that um, how much stablecoins are actually used to escape the um, inflation that the local uh, locals have with their own currency, which is uh, roughly 100%. So whatever you're earning today, uh, one year later, you have half of the value in your hands. And most of these stablecoin transactions aren't actually done in decentralized finance. Um, they're actually done in a centralized exchange uh, on a Tron 
uh, blockchain from one Binance account to another. So, so basically, it just showcases kind of like how much uh, how, how people are relying on uh, the centralized uh, systems in some of the uh, regions. So, I think like there's sort of impact that you can do on the stablecoin um, aspect, but also that there's definitely like diversity that is um, beneficial for the uh, Aave community as well. Uh, end of the day, but it's something that's kind of like additive than, than actually replacing anything. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I definitely agree that stable coins are probably one of the uh, the biggest use cases for crypto and, and we kind of see that coming through. Um, and as a lending protocol, you definitely sit in this like unique situation where building in a stable coin uh, around your protocol or into your protocol makes, makes a lot of sense, right? Because in the current state, uh, uh, without a stable coin, you need lenders to then use their assets to provide to the borrower. Uh, but with your own stable coin, you obviously have the unique ability to say, okay, once we have borrow demand, uh, we can mint our own stable coin to, to act as this, uh, this, this, the, the uh, asset being lent. And it definitely creates an interesting ability for the protocol to generate more revenue for itself, um, as, as well, just to continue to grow and scale. Uh, and we've seen other protocols do this, right? Like, of course, MakerDAO uh, has DAI that they use. Uh, we've seen Frax launch FraxLend uh, to complement their stablecoin. Um, and, you know, Sam K, uh, Sam Kasman, the founder of Frax, has kind of called this the trinity, right? Like they have the, the they leverage their liquidity through the Curve protocol. Uh, they now have FraxLend, their own uh their own uh, lending protocol um, and of course their own stablecoin. And so we kind of see Aave moving in this direction. Uh, do you think that there's value to kind of having like these three cornerstones or pillars of DeFi with uh, like liquidity uh, lending and a stablecoin? I think that the, 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 the bigger value is in, in overall in the DeFi ecosystem where you can actually go from one protocol to another, uh, from one community to another uh, and actually see transparently how these different communities are assessing uh, risk, uh, for example, and, and, and then adjusting those risk parameters within the communities. And I think the value of uh, decentralization is that uh, we don't have one single place where people come and actually decide upon um, something like a, um, a, a policy or interest rates for a stable point, but you actually have multiple different um, variations uh, for that, and I think that's. And if you look at the technical, um, the, the implementation is, and the idea of the Go stablecoin is that you are when you supply your assets into the other protocol, you are uh, earning on your collateral. So it's kind of like a different um, uh, type of a model that we currently uh, see. But for me, mainly it's about um, having those different. Uh, decentralized communities and, and their own risk assessments and then that we don't have kind of like a one um, like I would not see like DeFi being successful if there is like one stable coin rules everything you know and there's one place where you actually have to go and give your ideas and you know vote upon um, let's say interest rates or some other uh, strategies I would say I would see more if that there's multiple different kinds of communities that have their own ways to um, manage um, risk uh, and govern um, their protocol, and then they can learn from each other. And, and that creates a lot of interesting um, learnings. I think that will be the, the, the path to go. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, kind of like fragmenting or sharding the risk uh, of running a stable coin across many stable coins rather than kind of compounding that into one. 
Um, Rob, with the launch of Compound3, it looks like USDC is really the base asset in that ecosystem. Um, so does launching a stablecoin kind of make sense for Compound or are you going to stay uh, in, a different, in a different direction and kind of using USDC as that base currency? Yeah, so Compound3 is meant to be this like really simple like borrowing protocol building block that can be deployed on as many EVM chains as folks want. Um, once it gets deployed on many EVM chains, then you can do some really cool magical things with like bridging assets between chains, bridging positions between chains, all this really cool stuff. Um, but it sort of reduces the need to create a stablecoin fundamentally. Um, you know, so I'm actually really excited to see how and where Compound3 evolves to. Um, there's a lot of different things it can become. But I don't necessarily think that like a native stablecoin um, is one of them. It's possible community developers say like, actually, it's really cool. Like, let's add it. Like, and I'll be surprised. Um, but as like the default case, I don't think there's going to be a stablecoin. I think it's just like slightly unnecessary um, and fragments the ecosystem a little bit more than it has to. USDC, it has its risks, but it's also super efficient. Awesome. Yeah. And that's probably a great segue to kind of get into like scaling in the cross-chain world. Um, you know, I'm kind of curious to hear, hear your take on like building uh, the, the experience you had with building Compound Gateway, uh, kind of building in the Polkadot experience. I remember when DYDX, I think it was, uh, when they pivoted over to the Cosmos ecosystem, you tweeted out something like relatively bullish on like how Cosmos is interesting tech. Um, and I, I just kind of like love to hear your take on uh, your findings from building in Polkadot as well as kind of how you think uh, the growth in the Cosmos ecosystem will kind of play a role and is, is Compound interested in kind of pursuing something over in that ecosystem? Yeah. So to quickly rewind and summarize, you know, Compound Gateway was meant to be basically an app chain that would run Compound like a compound-like market with assets from every single blockchain. And the way it was going to do this was by launching a app chain or L1 and then having bridges to all these other base chains. And this was like a way to say like, okay, there's one cohesive market where you can share liquidity with assets from every chain. Really cool idea. Uh, I mean, honestly, like it's if it works, it's incredible. But as of 2020, 2021, the technical challenges of building this were really high. Um, a great example is we've seen almost every bridge get hacked uh, over the last like year and a half. Bridges are extremely dangerous and complicated to build safely. It can be done. There's lots of things being built correctly and safely. But to have as a strategy, okay, we're going to have one chain and like with custom bridges to everywhere else, you know, it was too much of a technical risk uh, to launch in a lot of ways. And I think that over time, that decision has been vindicated, um, just seeing how difficult it is to run bridges safely. That strategy doesn't really work. For an app chain that doesn't need to connect to other blockchains, I actually think it works great. I think like a DYDX where like all they have to do is let you get like USD coin in there and then like trade galore and they don't have to bridge to every other blockchain, like that's a really good like approach for an app chain if it can be like so self-contained. Um, so I think it'll be much more successful than the strategy that we originally were like researching. And when it comes to like platform, I do think that like there's a reason why you're starting to see so many different, you know, new chains launch on Cosmos versus other platforms. Most of the new like app chains are we're gonna launch in L1 are doing it in the Cosmos ecosystem. I think the user experience in Cosmos is still really rough in terms of like 
how wallets work and how like connecting to different like chains works and like how bridging assets works and like all of this stuff is like really crude. But for launching and going live with like your own chain, I think it's the best technology that I've seen um, so far versus other platforms. Yeah, I, I want to agree with Robert on this the the the, the, the bridging part. It's so it's, it's super difficult to to build secure bridges, and we've seen like recently even like one of the best builders in the space have tried to do that. So it's quite quite difficult. And I, I believe in app chains to the extent that you um, could actually then um, inherit the security, for example, from Ethereum and and kind of like uh, have this uh, roll of function. So that's that's something that could be very valuable. Um, and creating kind of like a micro ecosystems for 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 um, uh, for these communities that are uh, effectively um, going to that path. So I think that's an interesting uh, path to take, and especially like less riskier than uh, kind of like having the bridging uh, activity. Guys, I want to start to wrap this up with just thinking about the next cycle. Um, Rob, I. I have such good memories of DeFi summer and just remember, like, I just, I will give you credit. Like I do like here, here's my memory of DeFi summer, uh, COVID March of 2020, uh, fed kicks into action, does a bunch of money printing. People freak out about inflation. Uh, people, uh, Bitcoin narrative, uh, comes into play with like Bitcoin uh, is now this inflation hedge. Paul Tudor Jones calls Bitcoin the fastest horse in the race, like May, 2020, uh, and then you guys did your uh, like liquidity farming, yield farming, uh, li- like liquidity farming. And that just, man, like that. And then like Wi-Fi, a lot of things named after foods, a lot of yams uh, and like, you know, the Uniswap airdrop and just like, boom, like off to the races. Like, honestly, probably the best summer I've ever had. Uh, just really a lot of fun and like no sleep. And um, I'm just curious if you think that we will get something that crazy again in DeFi. Um, and, and, if, and if so, what, what kicks it off? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, when I look back on that time and like what I thought made it like crazy and cool was like you had a protocol that was working. You had a governance system like already built. And when like the token was launched, right, you had this basic process of like essentially saying like we're going to give away something that like is already live. It already works. There's already governance. Like everything is ready, like at the time the token was released. And that was like a new model and it was designed to be the exact opposite of like the ICO model where it was like, there's a token and nothing else. Like, (laughs) (laughs) right. It was was designed to be the exact opposite. It was like, there's a token. And like, if it ends here, like you literally have a whole thing to run, like have fun. Like, you know, I can quit and go on vacation and like everything works still. So like, enjoy it. Like, (laughs) and that's what was so new about it. Um, And I think what set off like a lot of other things of like, Hey, like we can like, you know, go about like creating and releasing tokens differently. They don't have to be vaporware and like maybe one day there's something tokens can actually like do things for real. Um, And so that's what I think like set off this like amazing moment of like experimentation that summer. Um, A lot of the tokens that were launched, you could like do cool things with like unlike, you know, back in the day. What comes next to give us that level of excitement? I mean, there's a lot of things that could do it, right? So one, I think like actual like gaming that's fun and like can like attract a huge audience has the potential to like totally shake up like how we experience crypto. Um, I think no knock against any project or like any team. Most of the games 
in existence today that like are like web three plus gaming are like really not fun at all. Yeah. <laughs> Most of like the play to earn stuff is not fun at all. Right. It's like fun to make money, but like the games are all horrible. I think gaming like is like this huge untapped opportunity that like can possibly get like a hundred million people like into crypto, like for real. Like I'm like you add a hundred million people and like suddenly it's like crazy town again. Right. So I think gaming is the first one that like is ripe. The second thing that I think is ripe for like a DeFi reinvention is the introduction of like zero knowledge technologies um, into like L1s, into the DeFi applications, into all of these things. And this is to like unlock like actual like institutional on-chain usage. Like when I talk to banks and hedge funds, they're like, huh, like why would I want everyone to like know my position at all times? Like that's such a disadvantage. Like why would I want to use Uniswap and get front run? Or like have like some like MEV like extract most of my money. Like DeFi doesn't actually work for like real Wall Street. It's like a lot of the sentiment of like Wall Street. But zero knowledge proofs and technology has the potential to change this. So this could be like, yeah, of course I can trade on this on-chain DEX. And like, you know, there's deep liquidity and it works like Uniswap V3. But like no one can front run me and I can't like have an MEV like rip out my value. And like it just works. And like, oh my goodness, like I like... This is cool. Like, I, I think like it has the potential to actually bring in like the wave of institutions like everyone says is coming, but like hasn't really come for DeFi yet because you can build new things that are like Wall Street grade that like really there's not much Wall Street grade today. Um, so I think like ZK technology is like the second like crazy catalyst for like a whole new class of users that like makes this crazy again. And lastly, I think like the third thing that can like set this off it's just like, like global macroeconomics, right? Like if we enter an era where people are like, okay, we can't trust existing assets for whatever reason, whether it's like central banks or like, you know, pandemics or whatever. If like people can't trust the existing asset classes, that's when they're like excited and willing to explore. And that's when like you have like, like the market conditions for like people to experiment and like with new assets and new models and new projects and new like, you know, base level, like financial primitives and like, like that'll be a right market condition. So like any of those three things I think can like get us like into like, you know, a wild era. I, I love that on number one gaming. I completely agree. Santiago has been hammering that home to me and just, just like you need to get more excited about gaming. So I'm, I, I I agree with you and I know Santiago would agree too on, um, on the macro. I think you're, I think you're spot on, on, um, on, uh, zero knowledge. I I have a question there. Like, will this get built on something like a Starkware or is it like, at, at what layer, like, will this be like ZKs at the, uh, who's, who's building this? Joe Carlson, uh, espresso systems, like ZKs at the layer one or like all built on a, like a ZK layer two. Like what, what does this actually look like? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm midwit. So like, I don't have like this sort of like, you, high you and me IQ both, answer. my friend, you and me both. Yeah, my yeah. Friend. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think there are like L1 chains that are designed to be like privacy first. And like, it's yeah. possible they catch on. It's possible that like systems on top of Ethereum catch on. It's possible that like applications themselves are able to embed like zero knowledge into the application layer. Like you can imagine like a compound or a Uniswap that like just works for you, but like no one really knows like who's using it, just that like it it has the correct collateral or it has the right liquidity. Um, there's a lot of ways this could unfold. And like, I don't know, I think like something's gonna work and like it's gonna happen and surprise us. Like it's so hard to predict ahead yeah. of time, like which thing is gonna be the thing, like that's the catalyst, but like something's gonna work. Yeah. 
Rob, you're on the right show, by the way. The, uh, the show is literally called Bell Curve. So you have, uh, you have come to the right place. Uh, Stani, I want to ask someone who's on the, the right side of the bell curve here uh, uh, in terms of just like what you see. I'm going to ask Rob, like you, the same question I asked Rob, which is like DeFi summer craziness. Like, do we see something similar? And, and if so, what, what kicks it off? And I, I don't know if you would agree with Rob's three predictions or like agree, but maybe add one or two or like take things out. I'm just, what, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I would say like Rob's predictions are are those that are very kind of like ripe at at the moment. So there's there's sort of value in in what you could do actually with gaming, um, and also uh, especially with with CKs and what kind of benefits it uh, provides. And for me, like I'm kind of like thinking like I I, I would see a lot of value um, and um, traction that DeFi can actually uh, bring still, and and there's there's innovation what you can build. But I think like I, I see like Web3 as, as, a, as a, like a broader economy as well. And that, you know, we build this amazing um, DeFi infrastructure within the larger um, economy. Um, and where I'm like focusing personally um, quite a lot is um, uh, building more of that um, non-financial uh, path into uh, using blockchain. And what, I, what I'm thinking is that um, uh, social media is one of the places where you have a lot of potential because um, currently we uh, we interact with each other. We, we're using um, very big platforms, but we don't have the ability to, for example, port your um, your audience, whatever you create in in uh, crypto Twitter, um, into somewhere else. Or you, you know, if you're a creator um, and you you have an audience in TikTok, you, you can't really port it into a new application that that might come. So I think that being able to own your uh, social presence um, and at the same time having uh, the ability to connect with your peers directly and, and publish and, and broadcast content um, is very valuable uh, also for the mon- direct monetization perspective. But it also does what DeFi did. So, you know, you change the dynamics that you have with, let's say, what you have with finance. You could do the same with um, social because you know when the users are owning their own um, self-expression and their like um, social media profiles and their connections, it's the applications and algorithms that have to actually like fight and uh, serve the users and and the users have the flexibility to uh, make the choice without leaving their followers and their whole social. Uh, capital uh, behind. And then that on-chain verified social capital can be used in different uh, use cases as well, uh, for example, in uh, uh, gaming. And I think gaming itself becomes more social. And those users then that come to this like non-financial utility pathway into blockchain, they will start using DeFi, um, some of them one way um, or another. So I kind of, I'm kind of like a bigger believer in this space. And also I think like um, a lot of things that have to be done in terms of the user experience that you should, you know, sign transactions, pay gas, and, you know, you, you should be able to onboard relatively quickly. And I think we have to just change a lot of concepts. For example, we can't think about wallets in a way that, you know, we store all our position in uh, addresses, but we actually have to divide the idea of wallets that you might have a wallet for low transaction value and you have something where what you're using DeFi and this year completely separate um, categories and, and that way we create more uh, adoption into the uh, space as well. So that's where, like, basically, I'm very passionate about at the moment. I just want to agree with Stani. 
I think that is an excellent thing that could be a massive catalyst for the entire space. Yeah, would also have to agree there. Like just when I think about like onboarding like my mom or something into crypto, right? Like getting her to use the logistics of a MetaMask and managing, you know, her her own money where like one fat finger and you permanently lost half your net worth from sending it to it in the wrong address is that's just not where adoption adoption to the masses needs to go, right? Like people come to crypto because like the the ideas that of uh, decentralization and like monetization, people love the concepts there and it's just like okay, that's fine for this certain subset of people. And like, we can all, we all kind of know this is the wild west and like, we can play by these rules. Uh, but like with the last bull market and the Terra blow up, like real people do get hurt when these things happen. Uh, so yeah, I just think we need to th figure out a way to make uh, crypto just more accessible in general. So love the concept around that. Stasani, love that. And uh, just one quick question to follow up on like the digital identity, social capital concept. Do you think that that's like, uh, just kind of a bigger unlock for DeFi itself? Or do you kind of think of, like, think of that as like a whole new market, like a, a comparable subsector to DeFi as a whole? Mm -hmm. I, well, I, I think of, like, I, I see identity more of a spectrum than, than like kind of like, I, that's why that, that's like what Lens is trying to do from the like profile perspective is just to kind of like tie your social presence into um, kind of like a one bucket with, which becomes a bit of, identity, but I think like everything you do on chain uh, as a spectrum is identity and also off chain. And you might have different things that, you know, also like are like data points of identity. It might be your passport, you know, your, your routines and your habits, uh, you know, the, the way you uh, communicate and the protocols you use on chain. So like, I think there's a lot of like footprint that we're uh, leaving out. And I, I've seen some stuff like where you are using that that footprint in in DeFi and Vision Score is one funny example where you know you can get uh, the experience based on like your Vision Score. So for example, if you're too new in the space, maybe you shouldn't be able to access um, some of the more kind of like um, riskier stuff that is in uh, DeFi. But also like finding the the products that you might be interested in or the um, the the governance proposals that you can um, contribute. So. I think there's there's definitely value in in fighting your appetite. Maybe maybe that's the place to to find things. Guys, last question here, and then I promise we'll wrap it up. Is uh, just on, in terms of um, we had, we had Ben Foreman from Parify on the last episode, and he's just really really excited about permission DeFi, and in his take, permission DeFi will be orders of magnitude larger than permissionless DeFi. Um, I'm just curious if you guys agree with that thesis or not. I disagree with the thesis. I think. The magic of permissionless is that the entire world can use it. The entire world can build it. The entire world can grow on it. You can have a DeFi protocol with interfaces and businesses built on top of it from around the world. Like it's like so much bigger potentially than having to essentially, you know, limit the audience or manually approve things or whitelist things. I just think like the scope of how big something it can get is so much bigger when it's permissionless and the interfaces on top of it can be permissioned. I think the market structure that evolves over time is one in which there's open permissionless DeFi protocols and the institutions that provide access to customers, whether they're a bank or a brokerage or an application are the ones that are like validating permissions generally. Um, and I think that's like the end state for a lot of this to happen. I think if Bitcoin were permissioned, it would be worth 0, 0.00. I think nobody would use it. I think permissioned 
is like creates like a claustrophobic system that like can't grow, like you're stimulating the growth of it. And so I, I vehemently disagree with Ben on this. I, uh, I take the opposite view. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, like, if you take us to that end state, will the front ends of, will the front ends of this system, like, will, will folks go to compound and go to Ave in 10 years or will they go to like the, the 600 different like front ends that like just the world has built on top of compound? Well, the front ends in like 10 years to this stuff, it's like people are going to like use compound and Ave through their JP Morgan account that they don't even know if right. it's like running on DeFi or not, or like, you know, Coinbase or like you could, be, we were talking about this today. Like you could, it might not even be financial apps. Like you could go to Zillow and Zillow is plugged in directly to compound and Ave and like you get your mortgage directly on Zillow instead of having to go to the bank. Right. Or you could AI. <laughs> there yeah, you go. And like, you could imagine that when like a consumer trades on Coinbase, like yeah. sometimes it comes from their order book and sometimes it comes from Uniswap, like whatever gets the better price. And like yeah. the user doesn't even know they're using a DeFi protocol. Like I think like over time, more and more stuff is going to run on these systems without people even noticing or caring or like having to know the difference. Just like I don't care that I can like spit up my own email server. Like I just know that like Gmail is like a good way to do email. Like and so I use it because it's easy. Eventually, you're going to have easy ways to like do finance and like it just so happens that the like the infrastructure yeah. deep down below is DeFi. Do you guys want to own those front ends um, as as the end of the day, like business builders and entrepreneurs, do you want to own those front ends or you're like, I'm just going to make my protocol as amazing as humanly possible and let the world build on top of them? Well, I can just say that, you know, like a lot of the um, uh, traction comes from, from different wallets and different integrations. So like it's, um, you know, there, uh, I, I think the, the, the beauty of the decentralization is that you, like you have multiple sources actually using these um, protocols and, and, that makes the the idea of, of, of decentralization like nothing really stops to run a um, a frontend that maybe has a different kinds of experience or value added services and I think that's how um, you know the, like uh, Web Three Tech is is working so you have you know the Ethereum network and you can run with open source software you can run a get node but you know uh, a lot of people use um, you know like services like Alchemy or Infura. And also you have businesses built on top of the like open, like permissionless infrastructure. So I, I think kind of like, uh, like there, they, there can be value being built and I don't see why, um, why not as long as it's like the access is decentralized and permissionless. Awesome guys. I think this is a good place to wrap. Appreciate you guys giving us uh, so much time. I think this was an amazing end to the season. Um, and yeah, we're all uh, wishing you guys both best of luck. Thanks everybody. Yep. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you guys. Nice. All right, everyone. Other side of the episode, man. That episode did not disappoint. Dan, what'd you think? It was it was killer. I, I really liked uh, kind of how we got into some of the deeper, more like ideological discussions, especially around like uh, uh, you know, is permission DeFi the answer? Uh, and I liked Leshner's take on kind of like no, like one of the core tenets of DeFi. And I think actually Vance hit this in the very first episode of the season uh, was. When you're building in DeFi, the, one of the biggest draws is the global wallet distribution. You're building products uh, for the entire globe. Like those, that's your customer base. And that's something we haven't really seen before. Uh, and, you know, Rob kind of went into detail about how that's just a bigger value prop than building for like institutions. Like, yes, institutions have the money on a relative basis. Uh, but, you know, the global wallet distribution could be a pretty big catalyst for, uh, 
kind of just broader market adoption, honestly. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it was just, it just shows the difference between building in web two versus web three, like this relentless focus on the protocol and then just letting the market run wild and build whatever they want to build on top. So Rob's kind of like, I mean, reading between the lines is kind of like, I don't give a crap if it's permissioned or permissionless or like what gets built on top. He's like, I'm just hyper-focused on building uh, the most lend, the, the, the best performant, uh, most performant, best lend and borrow protocol. And anyone can build whatever they want on top of it. I just thought he also had one more like interesting comment around like, like obviously, you know, like building in DeFi, you're building like these autonomous protocols that run just strictly on code with very limited to no human interaction. But like sometimes you forget that even like as someone who spends all day, every day, like reading about protocols, analyzing these things, like you forget that. And he's like, you know, I just want to like build this product that I can just like step away from and like go on vacation. Uh, just like really puts that into tone. Like they are like building these multi-generational protocols um, that can, they're just self-sufficient. Uh, again, sometimes you just kind of like forget that. It's good to hear it. Yeah, it it really is. I mean, just like the scale, if this stuff is successful, the scale of it is pretty mind boggling, right? I think it's, I mean, it's interesting, like talking to investors versus talking to builders, right? The amount of knowledge that Stani and Rob have to know about what else is going on in DeFi uh, is really interesting to try to wrap your head around, right? It's like the amount that they need to know about uh, building in cross-chain worlds, scaling other L1s, like their competitors, un- like how just honestly how debt markets work, uh, how lending and borrowing works, like credit versus collateral. Uh, it's I mean, it's just impressive. I think these two guys are really impressive. Yeah. And it was also great to hear like Stani's focus on like wanting to build like ease of access into DeFi, right? And, you know, I gave the example about like my mom using crypto and like that seemed to be like almost a priority to him and like having, how do you onboard the new class of users? Um, and I think it's a really difficult question because a lot of the core tenets of crypto in general is like immutability and finality. And like, yes, those are great things to like this current subset of users, but it's like, how do you enable that to actually be adopted by like the broader masses where like people make mistakes. That's just like, you have to build a product that is able to withstand those kinds of things. And that's just like a super tough question to answer right now. Yeah. I heard you talking about this on the last episode of empire uh, about reversible transactions, which I think is a interesting topic though. I'm a little uh, skeptical of it, but I, I don't know. I actually might push back on the, your mom, on the, your mom thing on the, uh, on the ease of onboarding. It's like, I don't think people onboard into anything because it's easy to use. Um, and like, let me maybe, you, I, I think people onboard into a ne- new technology because they have to use it because they're literally forced to use it, right? Like let's take credit cards, for example. If you were uh, like, as credit cards were starting to take, like to, to like go mainstream, um, there were a lot of people who fought using credit cards and they wanted to keep using cash. It wasn't until stores literally said you can't use cash here that credit cards became ubiquitous right um and i guess maybe even before that when stores were just like uh yeah like i'll take your cash but it's like so much easier like can't you just swipe your credit card like when it just became like a norm a normalized thing Uh, but i guess that i mean i think that and i think that has less to do with um like ease of use and more to do with just like how much is this stuff apparent in your day-to-day life which crypto right now is not in you, you can live a you can live a full life and not interact with crypto, right? So, so. yeah, maybe it's less about onboarding and then like more of as like user retention, right? Like if I send a trend, if like my first time ever using crypto and I like type in someone's address manually because I haven't figured out there's a QR code thing or whatever and I miss one one letter, right? 
then I just, you know, blasted a thousand dollars into, into nothingness. Then like, that would be like a scarring moment. Be like, okay, this isn't for me and like never come back. So I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's less about onboarding and it's more about like UX in general. Yeah. It was interesting how much the conversation kept getting pulled back to just like treasury management. Um, and like that, I actually found that part of the conversation so interesting, which I'm super excited about because that is the theme of next season, right? Talking about DAO treasury management uh, and like scaling DAOs, operating DAOs, lessons from DAOs, um, managing DAOs, uh, success stories, like how DAOs can become better, op- uh, can, can operate and scale better. And that's actually the theme of season two, which Mike and I'll get into soon. But like, uh, it, I just I I think I learned a lot just hearing how like Stani and Rob, but really Stani uh, in some in some of his thoughts on it, like how he thinks about running a treasury. It's super interesting, especially that part about outsourcing treasury management, not because um, I, I'm glad they agreed with my thesis there, like not because you can't do it internally, but because the community almost like won't let you do it successfully internally. Right. Yeah. You just get people like yelling, oh, you're diluting us if, you know, you're just trying to diversify the treasury's holdings. And I think Stani called that like taking the emotion out of it. Uh, it's a great way to phrase it. And yeah, I, I really agree with that. Yeah. Anything else? Any other big takeaways from the app? Uh, getting into like the stablecoin conversation, I thought it was pretty interesting how Rob was like, yeah, no, like that makes sense in some situations. But for us, like we're going to kind of, we're just not focused on that. Um, and I also really liked hearing his like takeaway from uh, the attempt to go multi-chain and like the world just kind of like wasn't ready for it. I mean, about the world like the tech stack. Uh, I thought that was like really interesting. And, you know, you kind of think like, okay, is that because that was kind of like try to run through Polkadot and like building on Substrate and that's like, there's a smaller development community there. Like, does that have anything to do with it? Uh, but like inherently, yes, bridges are risky. Like anybody in crypto knows that the experience is brutal. Like, you bridge away and you just wait for your assets to come. You're like, oh, what's going on here? Uh, it's just not a comfortable experience. Um, but yeah, no, that was just like, I don't know. I'm excited to see if like, if that really plays out and or if like the app chain thesis really does take off and we see the Cosmos space just really start to grow uh, in the next bull run. There are these small decisions in crypto that you think of, you know, it's funny to think about like if they went the other way, how different would the space look, right? Like if Compound had chose Cos- uh, Compound had chose Cosmos instead of Polkadot and had a better experience and had built their own app chain, like how much more the app chain thesis would have taken off? Like it's just interesting to think about those uh, little decisions that maybe went this way instead of that way. And I think the last thing that I found really interesting was Rob's description, really simple framing of like real world, like I said, real world assets. And he said, I wouldn't think of them. I wouldn't call them real world assets. ETH is a real world asset. I'd call them on-chain assets and off-chain assets. Um, And basically he bucketed them into like two different big buckets. One is like assets that kind of already produce yield and you just need to tokenize it like a treasury versus assets that you almost like have to pull into uh, uh, crypto capital markets, tokenize, uh, tokenize them, pull them into crypto capital markets, use them as supply in a in the lending platform, and then that, and then that's how they generate the yield. So I, I I just love that framing. I thought it was a really nice way to to think about it. Totally agree. Like, what do you think that like? I just try to think like, okay, what's gonna bring like this next wave of borrowers in? And it's like, okay, let's say like the local coffee shop down the street wants to start a, a sec, open a second store. And they need a million dollars to do it. What needs to happen for that 
the owner of that store would be like, I'm going to go get this loan from Compound. Like maybe they have the assets in the bank. They can do it in an over collateralized way, uh, but they want to be more capital efficient and and just kind yeah. of deposit that as collateral, take up the loan. Like what's going to bring that uh, that borrower into DeFi? I think there's only one thing that brings anyone into crypto. Well, there's probably two things. One is money. Um, and the second thing is just a better product experience, right? Like when you first, I don't know if you remember, like your first time ever trading on Uniswap, it was mind blowing for me. I connected MetaMask and traded. I was like, wait, what? like that was it? Like I didn't KYC. I didn't AML. I didn't like create an account. I didn't like have to wire funds from like my bank account. To, like, I was like, this is mind blowing. And I think um, people are going to have that experience once mortgages, like some something related to mortgages. Because I don't, I don't know if you own a home uh, down there in Atlanta, uh, but I I got my first house during COVID, and I got my first mortgage, and it took three freaking months to get this thing because I'm a I'm a business owner and like they don't they, you know if you're getting a mortgage they don't they hate business owners and they hate entrepreneurs I'll I'll just tell you that and uh and they definitely hate crypto which most of my assets are in crypto it's like I'm as risky as you can get like I own a business and I uh and uh and and most of my net worth is in crypto so it was so freaking hard to get this mortgage. And I think there are a lot of people who like don't fit into the mold of what a bank wants when they get a mortgage. And that is going to like, that's just a better product, getting a mortgage on chain. And it doesn't exist yet, but it, but it will exist. Yeah, I totally agree. I love that answer. Yeah. So anyways, man, thanks for joining me. Uh, see you guys next week for the final episode of Bell Curve with Mike. We're going to recap the season and give you guys the details on season two. 